Thank you for tuning in to season one of the America Builds podcast. We have some exciting guests in store for season two coming soon. Until then, please enjoy a look back at some highlights from this season. This is the America Builds podcast, and I'm Will, a prior service U.S. Marine and ex-venture capitalist, and I'm going on a journey to find those who engineer, build, manufacture, and move because they have the courage to get off the sidelines and execute. How do you approach, you know, the CHIPS Act and the U.S. trying to get involved in bringing some of this manufacturing back to the U.S.? Yeah, the short version is, I say that uh, about two years ago in Washington, the best weapon in the world is actually not F-35s or nukes. It's, it's actually manufacturing. And we use that weapon every day. That's the thing is like, uh, and if you manufacturing something that it's critical to me, like semiconductor, and I say one day, not anymore, what are you going to do? Yeah, just like I just won in the battle. Yeah, right. And there is <laughs> yeah. no chance, zero chance that a country, a nation like United States will say, hey, we give the spec, the design, the cut files and the bomb of our most sophisticated weapon to China. Right. But that's actually what we did in the last 40, 50 years. We basically outsource all of our manufacturing to Asia and Southeast Asia because mainly of uh, cost. Uh, but, you know, specifically on semiconductors in Taiwan, when we started the Eclipse in 2015, it was clear to me that, uh, you know, you have $100 trillion world GDP today. About $85 trillion is physical industries, automotive manufacturing, industrial defense. They are all going to transform by technology, and they are all going to be try to come back home. Because it just not makes sense to not having an industry that is that big outside of a nation like United States. What we are seeing with the CHIP Act is actually it's the first time I'm that bullish on a government. We say we'll not talk about uh, politics, but here we are. Second I know, time, I, know. I think these people are very serious about <laughs> writing about trillion dollars into an infrastructure bill, into the Manufacturing Act, the CHIP Act, uh, DOE and the LPO activities. And... What I think we will see, though, is this is not like uh, you send piece of software and suddenly it's happening uh, to build uh, five nanometer or seven nanometer or twelve nanometers outside of Arizona is going to take quite a lot of time. And I really believe that regardless who will which house will control in the next election, that train left the station and it will not change. We will continue to invest significantly in semiconductors fabrication in this country domestically in the next couple of decades. So how does this affect your macro strategy? I think globalization is going to slow down significantly in the next couple of decades. And I think if you used to have a very global macro view in your investments, I think you will struggle. I think we are moving to a deglobalization and that's naturally will form that uh, if you build a company in a country, it's going to mainly serve that country and the allies of that country. And maybe as it used to be that you can build a one company that will go globally. I think it's going to change dramatically. I think there is an opportunity to build. Uh, I will use some cliches. So sorry. But uh, like, you know, a Berkshire Hathaway venture. So own a bunch of operating business that's moving the real GDPs, but in the world of technology in those sectors. And that's what we are trying to build. And yeah, I mean, we have about 4.3 billion dedicated only to the U.S. market by large. And I think in the next 50 years, my guess we will have 50 billion or maybe more. And I think if we are 
going to think about investing outside of U.S., it will need to be only with countries that are that culturally close to the U.S. The point that I want to emphasize for the listener, which is, you know, the one thing that Leah and I share, I guess there's two things. We're obviously military. We've also raised funds. And it is the art of being told no. It's the art of taking a loss and, you know, and not being discouraged. And now that I'm running, you know, my own business on the side, it's a very similar skill to being a founder, raising capital, talking to new customers, having them tell you no. And I actually think that if a general partner has raised a fund, if they've started a fund, if they've raised a fund, they have more in common with a founder than somebody with a PhD that's sitting at a multi-billion dollar mega fund. What matters is if you have been told no a thousand times and you know the answer is yes and you persevere. Do you agree with that? A thousand percent. I was not the fastest soldier. I was not even the biggest in my team. I was not the smartest. And then when I finished and we did the IntuCell, I didn't know how to write code. I never raised money. I didn't know anything about contracts. And then when I moved to Flex, I never worked in a big company. I didn't have any MBAs degrees. And when I started a clip, I didn't come from Sequoia. I didn't invest. I was not successful investors. So I think the only thing I had is these core principles that I think are very similar between military or operators, entrepreneurship, and it's just like, you know, discipline, work ethic, being transparent, honest, authentic, and just not afraid to hear a thousand times no's. I tell people all the time, it's like, you heard no, yeah, the door is closed. Where's the window? What about the roof? So in the past, you've talked about a need for a new economy. Can you elaborate on what this means and how you're contributing to that vision through your work at Eclipse? Yeah, basically, I just don't view humanity continue to operate in the same way that we operate in the last 100 years and the next 200 years, meaning we tapped what we can get on productivity. And I think we are going to stuck in a $100 trillion GDP with really hot globe, with not enough uh, people to do the jobs that we need in order to move the economy. And I'm talking about those physical industries. Agriculture, manufacturing, food production, metal manufacturing, uh, healthcare uh, uh, manufacturing, uh, defense, aviation, mining. Those industries did not have a digital transformation yet. And we need Tesla and SpaceX for those industries to be happen in order to not only boost productivity and actually build a new economy, but also there is another, we call them the three Ps here, productivity, people, planet, Mm -hmm. also figuring out what we do with people in the world, because guess what? They don't want to do those jobs anymore. Yeah, uh, They don't want to work on the fields growing up ahead of lettuce. Their kids want to be engineers. Right. And planet, because we just continue poising this globe, and the globe is getting really upset with us. Yeah, And the beauty is when you apply technology into those physical industries, you actually can show that you can reduce crap and do things in a much better yield and actually have those industries that are the heavy measures, right, construction and others, do much better. So you almost like win three times. I think that like most people that are aware of who you are, your career, what you've done, you know, I don't know if you consider the Bin Laden raid as like the culmination of your career. Is that something that you feel like you could like put a badge on and say like, yeah, I played a role in this and like this made me feel good as like, you know, the cherry on top of the cake of a five-year decade plus, or excuse me, a five-decade plus career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it was clearly the high watermark of my professional career, very clearly the 55 years I spent in Intel and 
And the reason was, of course, that it was a lot riding on it. And uh, it was the textbook classic example of the way intelligence, and in this case, special operations, can work. And it was uh, really a magnificent operation from start to finish. Now, having said that, the intelligence was not by any means that which would give you confidence and certitude that UBL was actually in the compound at Abbottabad, you know. And to his great credit, President Obama made a very courageous decision hmm. to go ahead with the raid, which was, you know, and even that up to the last minute was debated about how should we do this. And uh, my own view was, which I can share with you, which I expressed in the Situation Room, was it's the far better, although briskier, but better to have thinking people on the ground who could make judgments about what to do once they landed, given the uncertainties of whether or not he was actually there or not. And you mean versus like putting a munition into the building? Yeah, well, I mean, the other options were a standoff munition of some sort and some, you know, aerial platform. And, and of course, that the downside of that was you could not be sure the target was there and B, that you got him. And so we kind of ruled that out pretty quickly. Weren't there concerns, though, that, you know, had the SEAL team been captured or had they been pinned down, that there would have been fallout politically with Pakistan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was why this was a very high stakes, high pressure kind of decision to make because of all the things that could go wrong. Uh, I mean, the SEAL team had to transit via helicopters about 170 miles into Pakistan. So there was a concern that the Pakistani air defense system would detect them. And certainly in the proximity to the compound that the helicopters would be heard, that would alert the police or the army and, you know, all kinds of issues there that could have happened, which, you know, made it kind of a high stress situation. So at what point was President Obama or you or Hillary Clinton kind of calling your counterparts in Pakistan and saying, this has occurred? Well, that wasn't until obviously the raid was over. And uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, who was then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, drew the short straw to call his counterpart, General Kayani. And that, as Mike reported it, and as we could tell, you know, General Kayani was completely surprised which kind of affirmed in my mind that the Pakistanis, A, didn't actually know, at least in the senior levels of their officialdom, didn't right. know that UBL was there, and clearly they didn't know anything about the raid. So after the call is made by the ground commander, right, like Geronimo, Geronimo, forgotten country, right, what is the next thing that occurs in that breakout room? Well, next, obviously... I mean, we weren't, you know, high-fiving or spiking the ball or anything like that. I mean, uh, even when they said Geronimo, well, that means they believe they got UBL. Well, they're still on the ground. You know, you still want to... You got to get know, them out. You got to get, get them out. out. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, obviously, people were, we were gratified. We got the target. Bear in mind, though, we still hadn't verified that, you know, other tests, but notably DNA, came later. You know, if you find out that X is true... But you know that if you report it, it'll be understood as why. How do you, like, you know, rationalize that? Well, do you, you report you, X? You don't have any choice but to um, 
you know, the, the bumper sticker motto of intelligence is truth to power, which doesn't mean intelligence has a monopoly on truth. That's not what it implies. What it does infer is the obligation that intelligence officers have to provide as straight, untainted, unvarnished intelligence facts and assessments as possible. I think the willingness and excitement to support national security has increased fivefold in the last five years. I think that you've seen good come from it as with companies like SpaceX and others. I think there's challenges also, but I think what we've shown is that we can start to disaggregate that Lockheed and Raytheon and L3 and others have and Boeing, and we can show that we can deliver higher quality in less time. Fixed fee contracts instead of cost plus is actually a more agile way to deliver higher quality. Um, but the big problem is that we're trying to over-engineer the solution through committees that are you know, nine degrees of separation away from the actual problem. Right. And so they have to decentralize the decisions down to program offices that work with the actual partners and companies and give them the authority and power to actually fund where it makes sense. I mean, if venture capital was limited to just six funds, then Cisco and Google and Apple would be getting all of the funding. Right. And no one else. Right, right. And so the spirit of innovation is being able to take a contrarian bet on a team that sees the world differently and has a secret. Yeah. But unless the DOD mirrors their funding structure that way, they'll never be able to mirror it. Yeah, that is super interesting that they see their fiduciary responsibility to a taxpayer in a different way than, let's say, a general partner sees their fiduciary responsibility to their LPs. I mean, they're both inspired to like be the, the you know stewards, the best stewards they possibly can, but they have almost exact opposite approaches to creating value and sustainable work programs. Why focus on folks who are so technical versus people who might have a broad vision and can sell? Yeah, I mean, these are brilliant founders that are solving super important problems, and they are one of the top 10 people in the world to go solve that problem. And so, you know, we attract ourselves to the absolute best people that can uniquely solve a particular problem and that could, with that, and are, are the architects of the solution can recruit the best people in the world, can inspire an ecosystem, can build the trust of their partners. And that means that they have to have a level of depth and expertise in their area that doesn't come with having a big vision and being able to just sell. We care about building lasting generational value. And so that's going to be in supporting the smartest people in the world. And without naming names, I mean, have you supported folks in the past that didn't have that technical background and it just did not work out for Venrock? Or is that more of like an Ethan Betrasky focus? Doing the- no, I think Venrock has been around since the 1960s. We were the right. venture fund that came out of the Rockefeller family. Uh, we're right. a separate venture fund now. But, you know, even from the beginning of the Rockefeller legacy, it was all about building long-term enduring businesses. And so even when first investors in Apple and Intel, and it was technical founders solving technical problems. And so we've had this ethos of don't back companies, back people. The job of a case officer is very analog. You don't really want to have a lot of tech around you when you're doing that job. But in the rest of the intelligence community, there is a tremendously important reliance on cutting edge technology and for case officers too, but it's just not something that you want to like integrate into your operations. 
But I would assume also that to iterate quickly and to stay on top of their game and to stay sharp, individual case officers must be thinking pretty creatively and outside the box as to how to exploit technology themselves. I mean, for example, no one's going to invest in a Raspberry Pi at InQtel. I mean, it's just on the market. So are there case officers out there just playing with Raspberry Pis and finding out that they can put a whole bunch of compute power right there in their pocket while they go do something? You don't have to give specifics. I'm just saying, like, is there a sense of responsibility on a case officer to be like, you know, whether I'm a human person or not, right? Because you're hiring for the ability to make friends with everyone and be authentic about it. But now you're asking this people person to actually be pretty fucking hot on, like, what the latest app is doing and how to exploit it, right? Yeah, well, creativity is also a highly prized characteristic of case officers and special operations, as you know. And so say, absolutely. If you give someone in that position a mission and they need to achieve it with limited resources, limited guidance, and limited time, they're not going to wait around for the acquisition cycle to catch up. They're going to go see what's on the shelf or what they can order on Amazon or what they can go buy in cash at the local bodega and put to work immediately. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be irresponsible about it. They're going to test that. They're going to use their training and skills and experience to make sure that they integrate that into operations in a secure way and that it actually does the job, it does mean that you're going to see some creative solutions using existing technologies out there. I joined the CIA because I wanted to help people. And I say that, and usually I preface that with laugh all you want, because people can get cynical about that. But I genuinely believe that if you work with, let's just say a 2 million plus person organization with a multi-billion dollar budget like the DOD, and you follow your values and your moral compass and you preserve your integrity, then you have the opportunity to make some pretty significant change that you want to make. And I've been doing this for 20 years now in some form or fashion. Call me naive, but I still believe that you can make good change from the inside. And I would rather do that than complain about it from the outside. So uh, this is uh, perhaps uh, good news to any uh, would-be entrepreneurs in the defense technology space who are listening um, and perhaps enlightening for investors who are interested in engaging in this space. But we took on a minimum of venture capital. We took um, not very much money in the form of a seed investment, uh, mostly from friends and family, high net worth individuals in our networks, and a couple of institutional investors, uh, but not very much money. And we actually built our company on uh, very lightweight R&D contracting opportunities within the government. So, you know, we were actively generating revenue right out the gates. Um, and the great thing about some of the lightweight, innovative contracting uh, opportunities available to young companies is that it puts you in direct touch with uh, customers and end users who can help you refine and build your product. It gives you non-dilutive R&D capital to do that, to, to do that work, to build things that are uh, intended for fielding within within uh, within the customer sets that you're engaging with, and it means that you don't have to. And you know, no no offense to the venture folks like you in the community, but you don't have to go and prostrate yourself to the VCs. You know, like I I love me a VC. Many a VC has given me money. Uh, I love a VC. However, um, you know, the power differential there is something that you know, like young entrepreneurs are not always terribly comfortable with, and it's kind of a necessary evil. It's a pill yeah. you've got to swallow. It's like eating your vegetables or whatever in, in the startup space. The venture community, uh, they are motivated in pure homo economicus terms. Like they want to make money. They want to, yeah. they want to like, they want to participate in making money. 
and yep. they are fighting for their LPs. I do not disparage them. They are uh, they are extremely rational actors. Um, but a lot of times it it uh, it can create crises for young entrepreneurs who don't know better to just accept a bunch of venture money when they don't yep. need it. Um, and then they end up losing control or they lose focus or they lose all kinds of things in the, in the course of building a business. So I would say yeah. that mission focus, uh, an appetite to bootstrap a little bit and hustle to find ways to build our company based on active revenue streams as opposed to venture capital. Or, or those are a bunch of key factors in our success so far. So you pursued non-dilutive capital. Fantastic. You've got contracts with the federal government and you're, you know, I'm assuming it's going to be people like AFWorks or uh, the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab or Naval X or these units that are kind of like forward leaning DIU for units that are forward leaning and in, in deploying um, some amount of like R and D contracts, SBIRs, OTAs, et cetera. That's all uh, thematically accurate. Is that right? Yeah, totally. In fact, every organization you just listed, we have active contracts with, with the exception of Naval X, but uh, that doesn't mean it won't happen in the future and many more beyond that. So yes. Yeah. Awesome. And so, so, but, but then if you did still raise a pre-seed seed from venture, like how did you think about bringing on an investor? Like, uh, you know, how many guys are there investors that are, that are combat hardened recon Marines that know what the hell you're talking about when it comes to imagery on the ground in Iraq? Or, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you vet them? Sure, they're dealing diligence on you, but surely you're choosing who you want to work with, right? How did you approach that? Yeah, that's true. Um, we need, our, our philosophy around engaging with investors is that we need uh, consensus head nods about mission and understanding of use case and mission and market. And almost to an investor, there is strong uh, interest from the investor side to uh, engage in the commercialization of our technology beyond the national security world, because that's a much larger market uh, in many cases. Uh, but most of them are also on side when it comes to using our defense interest, passion, and access uh, as an initial market stab. So like, we need to vet them. We need to understand that they are, like us, mission-focused, and they get they get what we're trying to do. They have uh, empathy for us, for our users and everybody else. So I think it really starts with articulating a vision and a mission. And then, you know, sometimes it can be hard to tell an investor no when they are ardent. But like, if they aren't getting that, then they're not the right investor for us. And um, so we found that, you know, it, it really does come down to, to vision um, in the earliest of days, because you don't have much to point to other than that. The other thing is like, we were in a position of strength going out into the investor community because we had active contracts from our customers in hand. We were actively generating revenue by the time we were engaging with investors. And many, many, maybe even most, maybe even the vast majority of young companies, uh, when they approach the investor community, are pre-revenue. And that's, um, you know, that maybe it's a necessity. Well, we did not want to go to the community like that. So, I mean, and it kind of highlights a handful of values that you have. One is, which I'm reading between the lines here, is kind of like putting your money where your mouth is. Like, if you're going to go raise money and take on capital from a GP who's raising it from somebody else and, and they're trying to be the best steward of that, of that money, you now are going to be the best steward of, of that money. Um, you know, you have to have a there there. There's got to be a product. There's got to be some amount of product market fit. You've got to identify your customers. And there's revenue. Like, like a lot of companies just go out and raise purely off vision. Not that that's wrong, but like there's far more at risk 
than than um, than what you're doing, which is like you know that there's a there there. Um, that's one thing that I'm hearing. Um, a second thing that you mentioned is empathy. How important is it for an investor to have empathy with your customer base? Not just understand it, but to like have empathy with them. I use that word all the time because it is one of it's a it's a personal value. It's a company value. It's my family. It's a family value. Um, empathy, I think, is one of the most important ingredients to success in life. I know that's a very broad statement, but I actually don't know that true empathy with an end user or customer is critical for the investor to have in the equation. I think understanding um, understanding of the application, the user, or the customer set, and how the value generation value delivery is happening and why it's valuable, all of those, it's useful for an investor to understand that at kind of like a, a cold remove. Uh, and it's actually sometimes useful to have investors who are, if not less empathetic, at least more concerned with like the hard nuts and bolts of performance and be able to like tweak the engine. You know, it's like, does a, does a NASCAR mechanic who works on the engine of high-end race cars, do they have empathy for the engine or are they trying to like fine tune it so that it drives as well as it possibly can for the, for the team, you know, like that, that's kind of how I think of it. And, and so I don't know that it's necessary for empathy to feature from the investor. And in fact, often it's useful to have an investor take the really cold kind of hard, rational eye to things and be a trusted advisor on that basis for the entrepreneurial team. I actually view um, one of my values as uh, as a founder, as a as a business leader, I, I think I think that our company would be nothing without a great team. Uh, a company often cannot just be vision, and you know maybe there are people out there who can do it all. You know they're down in the code and they're raising money and they're building the company and they're keynote speakers at X Y and Z event. You know that isn't me. I don't have that kind of capability or capacity. That's just the, and so I, I think, um, I get it. You're limited. I get it. Yeah. 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 I am. I mean, I joined the Marine Corps. Well, remember, yeah. uh, no, but you surround early. yourself, but you're surrounding yourself with people that might be smarter than you. I mean, like, I feel like I did that. I did that in the Marine Corps. Like, I mean, the folks, you know, that I prized as like having my ear, I felt like were much smarter than me on this stuff. My NCOs, my staff NCOs, those were lessons so, I brought on, you know, like yeah, subject matter experts. And yeah, right, right. I think I think one of the things that I, I, I try to practice in my life and definitely try to inculcate into our company as a core uh, mode of operating or value is that there's probably somebody out there who's smarter than you, better than you at what you're doing, has better ideas, could solve this problem easier, faster, better, lighter, leaner, whatever. And that uh, because of that, you should approach everything with not only a dose of humility, but um, from a position of like, People probably know better than me. Let's ask a lot of questions and learn. And then also, once somebody like me comes along and I've got a vision or some sort of conviction around what we're going to do at kind of like the 90,000 foot level, you, you articulate that vision, you put a bunch of people in the room who you think can get there, and then you get the hell out of the way. And, um, and, then, and then you just work to enable those people. And so, uh, you know, I've been in organizations where you have domineering leaders who are smart, but oftentimes because they have to control and have an opinion about everything and direct everything, they often slow things down or don't achieve the right kinds of outcomes or the best outcomes. And so I'm a big believer in building teams of 
capable, humble people who can rally around a vision and a goal and then execute together. And leaders, in my opinion, um, some, some forms of successful leadership are often just getting out of the way.